Chapter Seven of the Ball and the Cross. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Ball and the Cross by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter Seven: The Village of Grassley in the Hole. At about half past one, under a strong blue sky, Turnbull got up out of the grass and fern in which he had been lying, and his still intermittent laughter ended in a kind of yawn. "I'm hungry," he said shortly. "Are you?" I have not noticed, answered MacIan. What are you going to do? There's a village down the road past the pool, answered Turnbull. I can see it from here. I can see the whitewashed walls of some cottages and a kind of corner of the church. How jolly it all looks. It looks so, I don't know what the word is, so sensible. Don't fancy I am under any illusions about Arcadian virtue and the innocent villagers. Men make beasts of themselves there with drink, but they don't deliberately make devils of themselves with mere talking. They kill wild animals in the wild woods, but they don't kill cats to the god of victory. They don't... He broke off and suddenly spat on the ground. Excuse me, he said. It was ceremonial. One has to get the taste out of one's mouth. The taste of what? asked MacIan. I don't know the exact name for it, replied Turnbull. Perhaps it is the South Sea Islands, or it may be Magdalen College. There was a long pause, and MacIan also lifted his large limbs off the ground, his eyes particularly dreamy. I know what you mean, Turnbull, he said, but I always thought you people agreed with all that, with all that about doing as one likes, and the individual, and nature loving the strongest, and all the things which that cockroach talked about. Turnbull's big blue-gray eyes stood open with a grave astonishment. Do you really mean to say, MacIan, he said, that you fancied that we, the free thinkers, that Bradlaugh or Holyoke or Ingersoll, believe all that dirty, immoral mysticism about nature? Damn nature! I supposed you did, said MacIan calmly. It seems to me your most conclusive position. And you mean to tell me, rejoined the other, that you broke my window and challenged me to mortal combat, and tied a tradesman up with ropes, and chased an Oxford fellow across five meadows, all under the impression that I am such an illiterate idiot as to believe in nature? I supposed you did, repeated MacIan with his usual mildness, but I admit that I know little of the details of your belief or disbelief. Turnbull swung round quite suddenly and set off towards the village. Come along, he cried. Come down to the village. Come down to the nearest decent inhabitable pub. This is a case for beer. I do not quite follow you, said the Highlander. Yes, you do, answered Turnbull. You follow me slap into the inn parlor. I repeat, this is a case for beer. We must have the whole of this matter out thoroughly before we go a step farther. Do you know that an idea has just struck me of great simplicity and of some cogency? Do not by any means let us drop our intentions of settling our differences with two steel swords. But do you not think that with two pewter pots we might do what we really have never thought of doing yet? Discover what our difference is? It never occurred to me before, answered MacIan with tranquility. It is a good suggestion. And they set out at an easy swing down the steep road to the village of Grassley in the Hole. 
Grassley in the hole was a rude parallelogram of buildings, with two thoroughfares which might have been called two high streets if it had been possible to call them streets. One of these ways was higher on the slope than the other, the whole parallelogram lying aslant, so to speak, on the side of the hill. The upper of these two roads was decorated with a big public house, a butcher's shop, a small public house, a sweetstuff shop, a very small public house, and an illegible signpost. The lower of the two roads boasted a horse pond, a post office, a gentleman's garden with very high hedges, a microscopically small public house, and two cottages. Where all the people lived who supported all the public houses was in this, as in many other English villages, a silent and smiling mystery. The church lay a little above and beyond the village, with a square grey tower dominating it decisively. But even the church was scarcely so central and solemn an institution as the large public house, the Valencourt Arms. It was named after some splendid family that had long gone bankrupt, and whose seat was occupied by a man who had invented a hygienic bootjack. But the unfathomable sentimentalism of the English people insisted in regarding the inn, the seat, and the sitter in it, as alike parts of a pure and marmoreal antiquity. And in the Valancourt arms festivity itself had some solemnity and decorum, and beer was drunk with reverence, as it ought to be. Into the principal parlour of this place entered two strangers, who found themselves, as is always the case in such hostels, the object not of fluttered curiosity or pert inquiry, but of steady, ceaseless, devouring ocular study. They had long coats down to their heels, and carried under each coat something that looked like a stick. One was tall and dark, the other short and red-haired. They ordered a pot of ale each. McKeon, said Turnbull, lifting his tankard, the fool who wanted us to be friends made us want to go on fighting. It is only natural that the fool who wanted us to fight should make us friendly. McKeon, your health. Dusk was already dropping. The rustics in the tavern were already lurching and lumbering out of it by twos and threes, crying clamorous good nights to a solitary old toper that remained, before McKeon and Turnbull had reached the really important part of their discussion. McKeon wore an expression of sad bewilderment not uncommon with him. "'I am to understand, then,' he said, "'that you don't believe in nature.' "'You may say so in a very special and emphatic sense,' said Turnbull. "'I do not believe in nature, just as I do not believe in Odin. She is a myth. It is not merely that I do not believe that nature can guide us, it is that I do not believe that nature exists.' "'Exists?' said McKeon in his monotonous way, settling his pewter pot on the table. "'Yes, in a real sense nature does not exist.' I mean that nobody can discover what the original nature of things would have been if things had not interfered with it. The first blade of grass began to tear up the earth and eat it. It was interfering with nature, if there is any nature. The first wild ox began to tear up the grass and eat it. He was interfering with nature, if there is any nature. In the same way, continued Turnbull, the human, when it asserts its dominance over nature, is just as natural as the thing which it destroys. And in the same way, said McKeon, almost dreamily, the superhuman, the supernatural, is just as natural as the nature which it destroys. 
Turnbull took his head out of his pewter pot in some anger. The supernatural, of course, he said, is quite another thing. The case of the supernatural is simple. The supernatural does not exist. Quite so, said MacIan in a rather dull voice. You said the same about the natural. If the natural does not exist, the supernatural obviously can't. And he yawned a little over his ale. Turnbull turned for some reason a little red and remarked quickly, That may be jolly clever for all I know, but every one does know that there is a division between the things that as a matter of fact do commonly happen and the things that don't, things that break the evident laws of nature, which does not exist, put in McKeon sleepily. Turnbull struck the table with a sudden hand. Good Lord in heaven, he cried. Who does not exist? murmured MacIan. "'Good Lord in heaven!' thundered Turnbull, without regarding the interruption. "'Do you really mean to sit there and say that you, like anybody else, would not recognize the difference between a natural occurrence and a supernatural one, if there could be such a thing? If I flew up to the ceiling—' "'You would bump your head badly,' cried MacIan, suddenly starting up. "'One can't talk of this kind of a thing under a ceiling at all.' Come outside, come outside and ascend into heaven. He burst the door open on a blue abyss of evening, and they stepped out into it. It was suddenly and strangely cool. Turnbull, said MacIan, you have said some things so true and some so false that I want to talk, and I will try to talk so that you understand. For at present you do not understand at all. We don't seem to mean the same things by the same words. He stood silent for a second or two, and then resumed. A minute or two ago I caught you out in a real contradiction. At that moment, logically, I was right, and at that moment I knew I was wrong. Yes, there is a real difference between the natural and the supernatural. If you flew up into that blue sky this instant, I should think that you were moved by God, or the devil. But if you want to know what I really think, I must explain." He stopped again, abstractly boring the point of his sword into the earth, and went on. I was born and bred and taught in a complete universe. The supernatural was not natural, but it was perfectly reasonable. Nay, the supernatural to me is more reasonable than the natural, for the supernatural is a direct message from God, who is reason. I was taught that some things are natural and some things divine. I mean that some things are mechanical and some things divine. But there is the great difficulty, Turnbull. The great difficulty is that, according to my teaching, you are divine. Me? Divine? said Turnbull truculently. What do you mean? That is just the difficulty, continued MacIan thoughtfully. I was told that there was a difference between the grass and a man's will, and the difference was that a man's will was special and divine. A man's free will, I heard, was supernatural. Rubbish, said Turnbull. Oh, said MacIan patiently, then if a man's free will isn't supernatural, why do your materialists deny that it exists? Turnbull was silent for a moment. Then he began to speak, but MacIan continued with the same steady voice and sad eyes. So what I feel is this. Here is this great divine creation I was taught to believe in. I can understand your disbelieving in it, but why disbelieve in a part of it? It was all one thing to me, 
God had authority because he was God. Man had authority because he was man. You cannot prove that God is better than a man. Nor can you prove that a man is better than a horse. Why permit any ordinary thing? Why do you let a horse be saddled? Some modern thinkers disapprove of it, said Turnbull a little doubtfully. I know, said MacIan grimly. That man who talked about love, for instance. Turnbull made a humorous grimace. Then he said, We seem to be talking in a kind of shorthand, but I won't pretend not to understand you. What you mean is this, that you learnt all about your saints and angels at the same time as you learnt about common morality from the same people in the same way. And you mean to say that if one may be disputed, so may the other. Well, let that pass for the moment. But let me ask you a question in turn. Did not this system of yours, which you swallowed whole, contain all sorts of things that were merely local, the respect for the chief of your clan, or such things, the village ghost, the family feud, or what not? Did you not take in those things, too, along with your theology? MacIan stared along the dim village road, down which the last straggler from the inn was trailing his way. What you say is not unreasonable he said, but it is not quite true. The distinction between the chief and us did exist, but it was never anything like the distinction between the human and the divine, or the human and the animal. It was more like the distinction between one animal and another, but... Well, said Turnbull. MacIan was silent. Go on, repeated Turnbull. What's the matter with you? What are you staring at? I am staring, said MacIan at last, at that which shall judge us both. Oh, yes, said Turnbull in a tired way. I suppose you mean God. No, I don't, said MacIan, shaking his head. I mean him. And he pointed to the half-tipsy yokel who was ploughing down the road. What do you mean? asked the atheist. I mean him, repeated MacIan with emphasis. He goes out in the early dawn, he digs or he ploughs a field, then he comes back and drinks ale, and then he sings a song. All your philosophies and political systems are young compared to him. All your hoary cathedrals, yes, even the eternal church on earth is new compared to him. The most mouldering gods in the British Museum are new facts beside him. It is he who in the end shall judge us all and MacIan rose to his feet with a vague excitement. "'What are you going to do?' "'I am going to ask him,' cried MacIan, "'which of us is right?' Turnbull broke into a kind of laugh. "'Ask that intoxicated turnip-eater?' he began. "'Yes, which of us is right?' cried MacIan violently. "'Oh, you have long words, and I have long words, "'and I talk of every man being the image of God,' and you talk of every man being a citizen and enlightened enough to govern. But if every man typifies God, there is God. If every man is an enlightened citizen, there is your enlightened citizen. The first man one meets is always man. Let us catch him up. And in gigantic strides, the long, lean Highlander whirled away into the gray twilight, Turnbull following with a good-humored oath. The track of the rustic was easy to follow, even in the faltering dark, for he was enlivening his wavering walk with song. It was an interminable poem, beginning with some unspecified King William, 
who, it appeared, lived in London town, and who after the second rise vanished rather abruptly from the train of thought. The rest was almost entirely about beer, and was thick with local topography of a quite unrecognizable kind. The singer's step was neither very rapid, nor indeed exceptionally secure, so the song grew louder and louder, and the two soon overtook him. He was a man elderly, or rather of any age, with lean gray hair and a lean red face, but with that remarkable rustic physiognomy in which it seems that all the features stand out independently from the face. The rugged red nose going out like a limb, the bleared blue eyes standing out like signals. He gave them greeting with the elaborate urbanity of the slightly intoxicated. McKeon, who was vibrating with one of his silent, violent decisions, opened the question without delay. He explained the philosophic position in words as short and simple as possible. But the singular old man with the lank red face seemed to think uncommonly little of the short words. He fixed with a fierce affection upon one or two of the long ones. Atheists, he repeated with luxurious scorn. Atheists, I know their sort, master. Atheists, don't talk to me about an atheists. The grounds of his disdain seemed a little dark and confused, but they were evidently sufficient. McKeon resumed in some encouragement. You think as I do, I hope. You think that a man should be connected with the church, with the common Christian. The old man extended a quivering stick in the direction of a distant hill. There's the church, he said thickly. Grassly old church, that is. Pulled down it was, in the old squire's time, and— I mean, explained McKeon elaborately, that you think that there should be someone typifying religion, a priest. Priests, said the old man with sudden passion. Priests, I know one. What they want in England, that's what I say. What they want in England. They want you, said McKeon. Quite so, said Turnbull, and me, but they won't get us. McKeon, your attempt on the primitive innocence does not seem very successful. Let me try. What you want, my friend, is your rights. You don't want any priests or churches. A vote, a right to speak, is what you— Who says I ain't got a right to speak? said the old man, facing round in an irrational frenzy. I got a right to speak. I'm a man, I am. I don't want no votin' nor priests— I say a man's a man, that's what I say. If a man ain't a man, what is he? That's what I say. If a man ain't a man, what is he? When I sees a man, I says he's a man. Quite so, said Turnbull, a citizen. I say he's a man, said the rustic furiously, stopping and striking his stick on the ground. Not a city or aught else. He's a man. "'You're perfectly right,' said the sudden voice of McKeon, falling like a sword. "'And you have kept close to something the whole world of today tries to forget. "'Good night,' and the old man went on wildly singing into the night. "'A jolly old creature,' said Turnbull. "'He didn't seem able to get much beyond that fact that a man is a man.' "'Has anybody got beyond it?' asked McKeon. Turnbull looked at him curiously. "'Are you turning an agnostic?' he asked. "'Oh, you don't understand,' cried out McKeon. 
we Catholics are all agnostics. We Catholics have only in that sense got as far as realizing that man is a man. But your Ibsens and your Zolas and your Shaws and your Tolstoys have not even got so far. End of chapter 7 Recording by Tricia G.